You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Good to see your faces. Good to see uh, the sun out again. I hear it's coming to an end this evening. It's a bummer. Um, you know, on my way here, I was really blessed because I don't know how many of you read church church boards out front. You know, when you drive by a church and they have the, the little sign out and it has a little saying underneath. Boy, is there a good one on the way here from my house. What is the best vitamin for Christians? B1. Get it? B1. <clears throat> Man. Isn't it weird how how churches have been doing this forever, just reader boards, and it, it's kind of the original Twitter, and we just think Twitter's cool, but churches started it. Uh, anyhow, you're welcome. Uh, there's more to come from, from puns today. Uh, we are in our series, The Gospel Story. Now, the reason why we uh, told you in, for the last several weeks why we're doing The Gospel Story is just in, in the world of America and the world in, in the world actually that people are becoming more and more biblically illiterate we are every single day we're bombarded with um, something that is uh, fighting for our time to uh, entertain us to lead us astray into uh, the rabbit hole of news and social media and for whatever reason we are in this place where we're reading our Bibles less we're uh, not passing it on to the next generation. And to, uh, together as a church, we want to come together and go, these are the core principles. These are what we believe. This is the gospel arc of the story. And, and what happens through reading a, a, a big library, it really should be understood that when we think about the Bible, the Bible is, is a library. It's the biblica. It, is, it, it means library. There are 66 books in it. Again, uh, written over the span of about 1,500 years, around 40 authors, three different continents, and it still has one unifying story that points to Messiah Jesus. And, and so it takes some work sometimes to understand what does these little stories fit into the big story. And so as a, as a church, we want to go through this gospel story. When somebody says, and I grew up, when I, when I came to know the Lord, I heard it said, you know, you cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. You cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. Meaning, no matter if you are in Genesis uh, and you, it points to Jesus. If you're in Psalms and Proverbs, it points to Jesus. If you're in the prophets, the, the, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it, those point to Jesus. The little prophets, the minor prophets, they point to Jesus. But... Uh, to be honest, you know, it was difficult to, to see how this is one unifying story. And so what we're doing as a church is we're going through major key events, and for the next several months, we're looking at the Old Testament from this 30,000 uh, 30, feet view. Because we're not going to go deep into and go into a road map. We're not going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and do the whole Testament right now. But what we can do is say, hey, when we say that the whole Bible points to Jesus, we want to begin to look and examine that story. And today, 
is a major part in the story. Now, Ron, Pastor Ron took us in Luke 24 a couple weeks ago, and he pointed out and the story of the road to Emmaus. This is the story where Jesus is walking along after his death, burial, and resurrection. Hey, welcome back, man. Good to see you. Jesus is walking along his, uh, from after his death, burial, and resurrection. He's walking with the disciples, and the disciples, they, they don't recognize Jesus. One, physically walking with them. And two, they don't understand that why did all these events occur? We were wanting this conquering king. We thought we were going to have a political messiah. We thought it was going to be the reign and rule like King David. When we looked at the scriptures, the scriptures said there would be a king greater than David. We're, we're waiting for him. So they're walking back, beat down, depressed, wondering what just happened. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he explains it. And what we did, what I said last week is what we did is we rewind to the front of the movie where we go uh, previously, 1,500 years and before the foundations of the earth, in Genesis, we started out looking at creation. And what we looked at last week, and I hope what you walked away with, is that God, he stepped into creation, that he created mankind, and that he created man in the likeness and image of himself. That sitting here today, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created in, in the likeness and in the image of God. They were not created as God, but they were created in his likeness to have compassion like God, to show kindness like God, to care for creation like God. And that the, the residual effect is that you, everyone in this room, from, from little, little baby in the car seat here, to the most seasoned vet in this room, Steve Gustafson, uh, you are created in the image of God. That, that this, this whole idea of image of God, it informs how we think about um, babies in the womb. What do we, that's why as, as Christians we stand in that gap for the to be a voice to the voiceless. And we go, that, that, that is our belief that babies in the womb are made in the image of God. That's why we're pro-life. That's why we come alongside the woman who's in that situation where she feels like she is put in this position. And we are for the woman. And we go, you too are made in the image and likeness of God. That the image and likeness of God informs the way that we look at the world. When we look at people who are different from us. And so that's what we looked at last week. And that's the part of the story that will run through the rest of the Bible. Because what happens is that constant pursuit of humanity that's made in the image of God. And God as a creator, he comes and he creates. Christians are meant to create. We're meant to add to culture. We're meant to create alongside our creator. And what we see over and over again, mankind begins to decreate. We'll see this next week when we look at the fall or when we look at the flood. The flood story should not be <laughs> that Sunday school special of like Noah's Ark and he's looking happy and animals and petting the lions. Like it's a brutal story of decreation. It's a brutal story of how bad man began to sin against the other image bearers of God. So the image of God, it informs the way that we not only look at one another just as Christians, but just as humans. The basic principle of the Bible is that it starts out as, a, as human, mankind, Adam, uh, chapter 1, human. 
that it's a human story. It's how all people are made in the image and likeness of God. And so we'll see these patterns. And we, we get to this morning, we're going to go jump into, we'll, we'll touch on chapter 2, but we're going to go into chapter 3. And chapter 3, is in, it's titled The Fall. The fall of mankind. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, uh, you've probably heard that term. That's what we use. We use that, that terminology, the fall of man, or uh, the origins of sin, or original sin. But there's this idea that it's, that it's the fall of man that, that happened, and that's where sin entered the world. And though this is, this is true, it is somewhat misleading. Because when we think about falls, right? When you think about a fall, what do you think about? You think about it as kind of being accidental, right? That it just kind of happened, that you, you tripped and fell. And, and if you're like me, if you're like me, you love, you know, way too late and you stay up watching YouTube videos of fall fails. Where you just YouTube people falling and catching it on video. And it's oftentimes hilarious. Sometimes I realize it's not. Um, but, you know, we think about the fall. We walk out a couple weeks ago. It was really slippery. I walked out to my truck and, you know, I slipped. And then you look around, puffed up chest, making sure nobody saw that. Uh, you, you think of the fall as something that wasn't intentional. You don't, we don't often think about the, the effects of what happens after that. We think about fall. What about you fall in love? Right? You're just walking along one day, and you went into Starbucks, you got your coffee, and there she was, Miss Wright, or Mr. Wright right there. And you just kind of fell in love. Or the opposite. What about a marriage that's been going for a long time? It hasn't been cared for. What do we, what do we use culturally that we, what? Fell out of love. You know, we just grew apart. You know, we... We fell out of love with one another. Like, it just happened overnight, and it was an accident. That's not true. Usually it's slow decisions that are made day in and day out that, that happen. The, this, the effects of falling in and out of love. Uh, we sing nursery rhymes to our kids about falls, right? Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down. He broke his head, and Jill came tumbling after. Like... Weird, but we do it. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And apparently he's an egg. We don't know why, but somehow he's an egg. Never says he's an egg. My point is this, that when we think about a fall, we think about that it's something that happened to us. That it's nothing that we participated in. That it's something from outside, uh, outside pressures or... Uh, slippery ice, and it couldn't have been prevented. But what we're looking at today is we're going to look at a tragic story in the, in the book of Genesis. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, please open up your Bibles if you have them. Go to your devices. We'll start in chapter 2, verses 4. Uh, if you have a Bible there, I love that it's going to be easy for you. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's like the first three pages. Just open it right to the front, easy to get to. You don't have to fumble through and go, where's Job? You know, uh, where's Ecclesiastes? Nobody knows where that is. It's in there somewhere. So turn to uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4, and I'll just recap you. Because last week, remember I had said that there's two creation stories. We have two creation stories in Genesis, and if you're not familiar with it, Genesis chapter 1, all the way up to verse 3, is, is one creation story, and there's a lot of uh, cool stuff that's, 
that's talked about this, that it was most likely Genesis chapter 1 is a poem. And it was added later on. I know some people are sitting there going, what? An addition? Like, this, this happens. The Bible was actually formed over time, right? So we have, we have Genesis, and then Genesis 1 through 11 is ancient history to the entire world, meaning no one was there. The guy writing it, Moses, that is writing this, he wasn't there. He wasn't actually physically watching creation of the world. And so Genesis and the book in the Bible, the, the first five books, they're being written. And so what we, have to, what we have to understand right here that there is just an editorial note that it happens if you look at the end of chapter, at the end of Mark 13, that it shows this portion of the text wasn't originally here. It was added later as more manuscripts were found. And similar in Genesis, that chapter 1 seems to be added on as they started to write scrolls versus oral tradition. But chapter 2, it has almost the exact same wording as chapter 3. So a lot of crossover phrases, the, the word for God is the same, that these two chapters go together. And last week I showed you this weird chiastic structure. And we'll leave it up here for a little bit. And it, if it's weird to you, I get it. It's, uh, it's where A, A go together, B, B go together, C, C go together, and D sits right in the middle. And this is the whole idea about Hebrew writing. They want to drive you to a point. So where we're going to right now is we are driving to the fall of man. And the, the, the main point that the author wants you to get to from chapter 2 is right in the fall of mankind, the origin of sin. And so that's why we have two Genesis accounts. And there's nothing to be worried about that as the Bible's being written, that there's notes being taken, that there's an editor. We see that with, with Moses and that Moses had an editor that wrote things. And uh, we see Aaron, and this is pretty normal. We see Jeremiah and Baruch that, that wrote down things. And so there's an editorial note. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have a different creation account. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, it looks like creation was made in one day. And it may very well may have been. Um, but this is the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. And it's going to go through all of creation. And it's going to go down through verse 8. And the Lord planted the garden in Eden to the east and to the west. And he formed and out of the ground the Lord had made a spring. He made a tree. He made it pleasant. It was good for food. He made the tree of life in the midst of the garden and a second tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed. And so from verse 10 through 14, it's going to be this picture of Eden. And what Eden is going to serve for us, church, is it's going to serve as a blueprint for the temple. So we're going to see that there's that it's a squared it's a squared garden that we're going to see that there's an inner court there's an outer court we see that there's a tree uh, a tree of life at the end of Revelation there's also a tree of life that we see that it's also a garden city so for all intents and purposes we sit between kind of bookend between two gardens we sit behind beside this this temple imagery and that's what we have in the book. Uh, in, in chapter 2, and it's this whole garden setting in Eden. And then we're going to move right on into verse 17. But the tree of, and, and he said, you sure, he's, he's speaking to man, and he says, and the Lord commanded the, the man, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge 
of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, if you eat of it, you will surely die. And thus, this is the command of God to Adam and Eve. And there's also fun discussions to be had on why, why was there even a tree there? Why was the temptation even put there? Uh, much like putting cookies on, on our countertop at our house. Right now, there are cookies all over my house. My wife bakes a lot of cookies, and I, I would like to cut back on eating cookies. And I think to myself, why would you even bake them? Why would you even put them there? Because you know that I will clear the pan. And then I will just say, babe, you got to stop doing that. Please stop baking those cookies. And, and then I'll, by the end of the evening, I'll say, could you make a few more? I'm just going to eat a couple. Why would you even put it there? And this, this begins the question of, of our free will. We are introduced to what the Bible will refer to and what theologians will refer to as our free will. And the idea that when we have, when we have this tree of life, the tree of good and evil, that the, that the divine presence of God, that his, his presence, that his fellowship with man was also meant to be, was supposed to be in connection to obedience. That God didn't come down and he didn't make robots. He didn't come down and he didn't make everyone just to do what he wanted them to do. That God stepped into our world, that he created the world, and that he gave a place for man to choose him or not. And that it was meant to be this, this divine choosing of obedience. That God put into the presence of that you could choose to not, to not trust God. And what we will get to today, what we will look at, when we trust God, the big, the big deal in Genesis chapter 3 is do we trust God for who he says he is? And that's what we see Adam here, and he goes... He goes on in verses 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. Every dude said amen. Right? And God looks down. And I do want to make a note on this. I want to make a, a quick note here. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens. And he had brought them to, to Adam. And Adam begins his naming. He gave name, and Adam gave names to all the livestock and all the beasts of the field. Verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And I do want to, I want to pause here. That when we think about a helper, that God looked, and, and Adam's doing his naming thing. And he's naming the, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And there wasn't a helper fit for him. And God, and on God's initiative, and this is what we want to see. We want to see this pattern that God initiates, that God initiates creation, that God initiates communion with man, that God sees what Adam doesn't even see for himself and sees it's not good. God steps into Adam's world when Adam's like, man, this is a party, you know, like I'm naming animals, I'm hanging out, I don't have clothes on, and I'm running through the fields, this is great. And God looks and he says for the first time, what? It is not good. You need somebody. And what he does is he makes out of the rib of Adam a helper. And church, again, this is, 
I want to stop at every verse here, and I know I need to get through. Um, there is great debate to be had on many topics in the first two chapters of Genesis. But one of them, one of them is the helper and the structure of, of households, the structure of leadership, the structure of, of how godly and biblical leadership should happen. And I would tell you as a warning be careful in drawing big conclusions out of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Oftentimes what I see structurally, what we'll see, people draw these, these big lines on this is how a household should be, and this is what a man is, and this is what a woman is, and, this, and, and they're actually reading from the curse. They're drawing conclusions from the curse when God comes down and he actually and he puts it out as a curse. And the helper, what I want to make just quick mention of, because I think it's important, is that this helper isn't a slave. God doesn't see man and he goes, hey, man, Adam, you need a slave. You need a servant to serve your every needs. What God does is he forms a co-heir, that it is, that is man and woman, the idea that the two become one. And I would like to remind you that God himself biblically is referred to as our helper. So this is not meant to be a subordinate role. This isn't meant to be second team, B team. This isn't meant to be, oh, I'm lesser than. But what's, the, what's a helper? What's kind of the connotation of a helper is that you, you need help. You can't do it on your own. It is not good for you. God's looking around and he's like, man, yeah, it's not going to work. Uh, you need somebody, dude. And, and it's true. Like I would say, I think most men, we all need somebody. But, but, and also, this is not gender exclusive here, where it's not meant to just be, well, the woman's the helper. I don't help. That's not the case. It doesn't mean just because it was assigned to Eve that a man is not a helper to the woman, but the two become one. Uh, in, I just want to point out, in Psalms 54, behold, God is my helper. God is referred to as the helper. Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am the God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Hebrews, the Lord, Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 6. I am your helper. God is referred to as a helper. So when we start making these, these big swooping conclusions on gender roles and you know this is how it's going to be in our house and i'm the i'm the man and you're a slave or a servant to me and fetch me those cookies ashley that is we're using the scriptures wrongly uh and i i think that it's worth pointing out the reason i point out is because i've heard a lot of wild stuff so anyhow adam takes his nap it says that he was put into a deep sleep and like i said last week for a man that's just a nap a deep sleep that's just a dude I don't know a lot of guys that don't sleep, sleep heavy. Adam, uh, out of that, Adam is, he, the, the rib is pulled out of Adam. He forms woman. Uh, it's actually more beautifully done than how he formed man. So I'll just make a point. He was like, man, uh, dirt, mud, boom. Woman, it's a little bit more intimate and more beautiful. It's pulled out of the side of, of Adam and Adam's jaw. Just hits the ground. We see this poem in verse 23. Adam's like, oh, oh last of last, or this is the last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. <laughs> He's so creative. Uh, because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. And they were naked and unashamed. Sermon over. Uh, kidding. This is the creation in chapter 2. This is the creation story of Adam and Eve. This is the relationship that Adam and Eve have. And we quickly get into chapter 3. And this is uh, what I have titled dialogue. And it's just dialogue. But the first dialogue is with the devil. The first dialogue is with the serpent. Um, my son, one time he was hearing a, 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 a teaching out of Genesis 3. And somebody said, kept referring to the serpent as Satan. And my son was like, it doesn't say Satan. I'm like, yeah, it's Satan. He's like, it doesn't say Satan. I'm like, yeah, it does. I'm pretty sure it does. But he can go back there, and he's like, uh, snake. He's like, it doesn't say Satan. And so I want us to understand that when, I, when, we talk about, when we talk about the serpent, that it is, it is implicit that it's, that it's Satan. And we see that unfold. In the New Testament, it becomes explicit. Like we, we look back, we see that, uh, that many New Testament writers re look back, and they refer to the serpent as Satan. So this first conversation, or a better translation, the deceiver, Eve is here with the deceiver. And we're going to just get into this and we'll see how far we get. Uh, now, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any of the tree of gar in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Let's pause here. We have this conversation with, with Eve. We see that this, this conversation's happening here, and I think there's a few things that we can point out and draw from this. Does Eve seem shocked? To be having this conversation? Does Eve seem like, oh, all of a sudden there's a talking serpent. We don't know everything that this entails and what this actually looks like. But this conversation, does it seem unfamiliar to Eve? No, it doesn't. Yeah, you guys are shaking your heads. You can say it out. We can be alive here at this church. Um, no, this is a, not an unfamiliar conversation for Eve. As if she's had this conversation before. Eve is in this dialogue and what happens is a good point to look at. The serpent, the deceiver, never says anything like, hey, you should eat of the fruit. What, what's, the, what's the deceiver do? Just questions it. Because the question said, oh, did, did God really say that? Oh, God said you can't eat or touch anything? And Eve's like, no, we can't, we can't eat or touch anything. She adds to it. God, there's no account that you couldn't touch the tree. You couldn't touch the fruit, but begins to add to it. What we see here is that Eve has this conversation with somebody that's familiar to her, like she's been here before. And that what happens is Eve's curiosity gets to her questioning God's goodness. Eve's curiosity gets to the enemy is able to insert, is God telling you the truth? Is that is that what he really said? This is the same thing that we see in, in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus goes out into the, into the wilderness and he's tempted. That this is what the devil comes and he does. And he goes, 
Oh, surely, if you want the kingdoms of this world, I could give them to you. Oh, and, and what we see in, in the wilderness account with Jesus is that the devil is even using scripture. And he's just tweaking to scripture enough. He's just turning it just enough that we begin to question God's goodness and God's word. It's a great lesson for us, church, in a world right now, in a, in a world growing and going and, and saying, is this, is this true? Can this actually be trusted? Is that really what you would base your life on? Is this actually how you would live this out? Is that really your world view, that there's this invisible God that's, that's omnipresent, that's everywhere, that's all powerful, that created? That's what you believe? You, you believe that this fits in a time like this? These are questions that we've all had. These are questions that are thrown out to us. But what happens over and over again, church, is the deceiver comes in and causes us to question this. Even, you know, I think about young people right now, and, and, and it, it's, it's tough for young people. Really, is it best for you to save yourself for marriage? Is that really, that's an old school way of teaching. The, the deceiver comes in and he just says, really, you're going to just be committed to one man, one woman your whole life? Is it, is it really worth it? Shouldn't you be exploring and, and exploring your sexuality in many different ways and with many different people? And, and, and the deceiver comes in and just gets our youth, comes in to our marriages and says, really? You know, is divorce really a sin? But, but what about falling out of love? Marriage is hard right now. Do you, it doesn't need to be hard. You can just get out of it. There's many ways that the deceiver comes in and just tweaks things just a little bit. And it usually doesn't happen quick. The other observation to be made with the Eve account is that it's, it's, a, it's a steady conversation with the one who deceives us. It's a steady conversation of we keep going back. It keeps going back to maybe you bump into that female at the gym. Maybe it's that conversation. Maybe it's looking up an X on uh, social media. Maybe it's running things in our mind. Remember what Jesus said? That where, do, where does adultery start? In your mind, right? That, that where does sin start? Where, do, where, does, where does murder start? In hatred. Hatred, right? And Jesus says that, hey, for a man that, that looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery. That, that Jesus himself refers back to this and says that the original sin, it started in our minds. It started in our small conversations. It smart, started with just a slow fade, a slow drift of not trusting God's word. A slow drift of talking to the deceiver. Um, I'm going to deceive you that we're going to get out of here by 10 if, we, if I don't keep going. So Eve, she has this conversation, and then what happens? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and this should break our hearts, church, saw that the food was good and a delight to the eye, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate of it. Their eyes were both open. And they knew that they were naked. They sewed together fig leaves ugh, together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, we'll just finish this off. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. 
But the Lord had called to them and uh, called the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Now we can just blaze over this story and I, and I do want to uh, take a quick look at what's, what's going on here. Eve has just taken of the fruit. She takes of the fruit and then she turns to Adam. She turns to Adam and she gives it to Adam and what's the text say? That Adam took of it, that he ate, that he was there. It wasn't just this, this accidental, I fell into the fruit tree and accidentally opened my mouth and bit of the apple. This, this what happens here is Adam, he does not do what God has called him to. And again, we don't want to get into gender-specific sins here because there's a lot of overlap. But what, what Adam does isn't, isn't, he, he, isn't direct disobedience necessarily, but what he but what he doesn't do is more important. He didn't step in. He didn't step in to be who God had created him to be. He didn't step in and say, Eve, we've been having this conversation. You can almost see this unfold because we're looking at it, and it looks like just in a few verses all this is happening. But this is Adam and Eve. They've had this conversation. Eve has been here. Eve knows the deceiver. They've had a conversation, and Adam is there, and he does nothing. And I know that this has been the story that I've seen in men in my personal life. I know that this has been the story that God has used in my own personal life. That sometimes I can be really proud as a man of what I didn't do. I didn't do that. I didn't do that sin. I, you know, I'm, I'm not committing adultery. Um, but maybe I'm not a present husband. Maybe I'm that, that dad that, you know, I'm a good dad. I'm not, you know, out running around and I'm at home. But I'm not home. I'm sitting on my phone. I'm vegged out watching TV. See, sp I want to speak to you, men, that right now, that there is, there is something for our soul. There's something in the, the soul of a man that we're, met, we're created in the image of God, and we're designed to create, we're designed to protect, we're designed to lead, but we're not designed to do nothing. The sin of Adam is that he was a coward. That he was a cowardly man, that he stood there, and instead of protecting Eve, instead of pointing Eve to trusting in the Lord, instead of reminding Eve of the goodness and the trustworthy and the faithfulness and that she's made in the image of God, instead of reminding Eve that we have communion and that we are without shame and that we're connected, Adam did what many men do nothing and we see quickly that it becomes the blame game down here in verse 12 and the man said this is right after God said who who told you that you were naked and they were ashamed then the man said woman the woman whom you gave me the woman whom you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate it then the Lord said to the woman what is this that you have done woman the serpent deceived me and I ate it it became it becomes the the shame the the blame of shame that we see that they're in their shame and they begin to blame one another that what Adam does is he goes look this wasn't my fault 
God, the woman that you gave me, that blessing just a few verses ago, the one where I could barely talk, the one where I saw her and I'm like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she's the one that led me astray. And what's, God, what's Adam do? He turns it to God. He goes, it's, it's not just the woman's fault, it's your fault. You gave her to me. And church, man, this, this has caused me to repent many times. Because oftentimes the people that we're mad at, the people that we're really frustrated with, has very little to do with them and much more to do with our relationship to the Lord. The things that we're ultimately mad about, the things that we're ultimately hurt about, is we can look and go, Lord, were you not there? Did you not step in? This is, this is your fault, God. You brought me to this place. I was following you. I thought I was supposed to marry him. I thought I was supposed to marry her. I thought I was supposed to be single. I thought I was supposed to go on this career. I thought I was, and you, you did this to me, God. It's a dangerous place to be, and I've been there, church. I've been there. Has anybody else in the room been there? Yeah, we've been there. And Eve, she goes, it wasn't me. It was the deceiver, the one who deceived me. And we get into verse, uh, verse 14 and 15. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and, he, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then begins the curse where God comes in and he says, you know, Eve, from this childbearing is going to be tough uh, to say the least. And through childbearing will birth the Savior. And then to Adam, because you listened to your wife, the voice uh, the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I command you that the ground that your work that your labor that your toil will will toil against you that it will be hard by the sweat of your brow that that work was designed uh, before the fall work was meant to be a gift but now your work will labor against you and what we he have here Ron, Pastor Ron pointed out to us we have a great Scrabble word proto evangelium. Proto-evangelium in verse 315. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is why we put this in the gospel story for you, church. This is the beginning of God coming in, stepping into creation and saying, all, the, all of creation has felt the effects of, of the fallen creation. That when Adam and Eve fell, our relationships were hurt, that, that the pain of childbearing, I don't know what that is like, but I've witnessed it a few times, and it seems bad. That they're the most beautiful sunset, the most beautiful sunset, the most beautiful scene, that has been touched by the fall. There is not one area of life that has not been touched by this event. This is the event that will continue to stain against the Imago Dei. This is the event that will continue to, uh, man will sin against man throughout the, all of Scripture. And what we have here, we have God, that he steps in and he says, there will, I will send one through the pain of childbearing. I will send Christ. I will send a Messiah. And what he will do is he will crush the head of the deceiver. But what will happen? The one that crushes his head will give a death blow. He will strike the heel. 
that Christ will come and he'll crush the head of the deceiver, but he will also suffer a death. This is the first look that we see at a prophetic movement looking at Christ. The big surprise ending, as you know, because Jesus spoiled it, is surprise, it didn't kill me, I'm back. But th- yeah, woo, yeah, one person's bummed. Uh, this is the beginning of the gospel message. This is God stepping in and going, this is the work of the gospel. I will fix it. Once again, we see that God initiates the plan. That we see that what Adam and Eve, in the lack of trust of God, that Adam and Eve, that God makes them, what, a loincloth? He goes, and this is actually the first time we see that God kills an animal, that there's, that there's blood shed for the covering of sin that God made leather loincloths. This is also a symbol of inheritance. Clothing in the Bible is oftentimes referred to as a symbol of inheritance. Hence, you know, Joseph's coat of many colors. It's a symbol of inheritance. Uh, This right here is God giving an inheritance to Adam and Eve and saying, this problem, I will fix it. This problem, I will send a savior. This sin problem will have ultimate blood sacrifice that will cover the sins of the whole world. This is the beginning of the gospel, church. This is the message. This is what the New Testament will look at and say, Adam, Adam was the, sin came through the line of Adam. What Adam could not do, God did. What Adam could not do, that in Romans, it refers to Christ as the second Adam. And he says, I will ultimately fix this through the work of Jesus Christ. And everybody in the church said, amen. Let us pray. Jesus, we come before you in a, in a big, big portion of the story of the gospel. The one that kind of sets everything else up. And Lord, we, it's meaty and there's a lot here, but God, I pray that you would be speaking to us this, this morning. And God, I pray right now that people would leave this room, Jesus, full of hope. That they would, feel, they, would, they would feel the presence of you and know that you came to take away the stain of Satan, sin, and death. That, that in this room, Jesus, that their sin, that our sin, that my sin has been paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. A once and for all atonement. Lord, we thank you, God, that what what man did, that when we did not trust you, God, you initiated reckless love towards us, a persistent love, a jealous love towards pursuit of us. God, all we can do in the midst of that is we say thank you. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that the sin that we came in here with has been paid for and bought by you. We thank you that the sin that we will commit has been paid for and and, and bought by you. And God, we come in and we say, Lord, let us trust you. Let us trust in your goodness. Let us trust in your trustworthiness. Let us trust in your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that you are good and we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.